Well, good morning, High Street. Glad to see you all today. Welcome to those who are here in person, those who are joining us at home. We're so glad you're with us. We hope you're blessed today. In a couple of days, it will be the 52nd anniversary of one of humanity's greatest achievements, an achievement that still to this day inspires awe, and rightly so. 52 years ago, we sent two of our own to walk on the surface of the moon. It's amazing to think about that. There were people on the surface of the moon. And you know, that moon mission demonstrated a couple of very interesting things about humanity. On the one hand, the astronauts stood on the moon in the astral dust and they looked up and they saw in the moon's sky our planet. They saw Earth, this planet of monumental mountains, of vast seas, of rolling prairies, of billions and billions of living things and all these various forms. And they saw that vast world and it was just a little sphere suspended in the vastness of the cosmos. And they got a unique perspective on the smallness of humanity. And they took pictures and they brought those back. And we've seen these pictures of Earth and we're reminded of how incredibly small we were and we are through that mission. On the other hand, the moon mission also demonstrated the greatness of humanity. It showed that whenever we will work together, we'll have singularity of vision, we'll use our rationality, our ability to use our bodies, our ability to harness the natural resources at our disposal. When we'll work together and work towards something good, we can accomplish wonders together. So here in this moon mission, we saw displayed our smallness and our greatness. And so it's only fitting that the astronauts had left behind on the surface of the moon an ancient poem that deals with these exact themes of the smallness of humanity and the greatness of humanity. They left behind a silicon disk that had inscriptions, various messages from Earth, and one of those messages was this ancient song to which I refer, and you'll not be surprised to hear, it's our text for today, it's the eighth psalm. I'll ask you to turn there or pull it up on your phone, or of course you can read on the screens if you'd like to. The eighth psalm not only has the distinction of occupying a piece of lunar real estate, it's not only got that distinction, it's also been richly inspirational over the years to songwriters. So any 90s worship music fans present today? There was a slight murmur, okay. I grew up with that music, I like that music, and so there was a song called How Majestic Is Your Name. Do you remember How Majestic Is Your Name? Let's sing it together, just kidding. You don't want to, you don't want to hear that, and, and, and I don't want to do it, not because I would lose dignity. I, I lost that a long time ago, as I tell my students. I just don't want to get us started on the wrong foot. And so, but it's a cool, catchy song. You can look it up on YouTube later. Now, you may, you may or may not like that song, but I'll tell you this. There's one song that, as far as I know, is unanimously loved that was inspired by the eighth psalm. And you're familiar with it because we just sang it. It's How Great Thou Art. How Great Thou Art is inspired by this psalm that we'll be looking at today. So as you've got it pulled up and as you look at it in your Bible, as you look at it on the screen and you read, you'll notice this is a pretty short little psalm. And remember that the psalms are the Hebrew songbook, and so this is a little song that would be sung. It's pretty short, but this psalm is like humanity. It's small, but it's great. It's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. So let's dive into it and explore it today. The title, of course, of this series is the book that reads us. So let's open our hearts here to this psalm as we read it, and I think we'll find that it does read us. The opening words address God with these words, O Lord, our Lord. 
The first Lord is the personal name of God. He's addressed personally. It's important to remember God is personal and has a personal name. That's the first Lord. Our Lord, the second Lord, is the Hebrew word that means sovereign or master. And so there's a theological statement here in this initial address of the psalmist. Oh Lord, this personal God, this personal creator, our Lord, our master, our sovereign, the transcendent creator of the universe who is also personal. And that's just the opening line. Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent, how surpassing, how amazing is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. His glory even greater than the glory that we can see in the created order. Verse two, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. This is a mysterious verse. I will not pretend, even after studying this for the last couple of weeks and praying over it, that I have a full grasp of what this verse means. I, I don't quite get it. But I've got a glimmer of it, and here's what I think it might be getting at. When a child has spontaneous praise in its life, that praise is awe-filled, wonder-filled, it's trusting, it's uninhibited, it's not jaded. And there's something powerful in that type of praise. I'm thinking of the children that are going to camp this week. They'll be singing every day. And as those kids come to God with trust, with vulnerability, with awe as they're learning about the world, there's something in their songs that is immensely powerful. Whether we're children, whether we're adults, that type of praise is something that has power and it has more power than the utterances of the enemies of God. And when we live these lives of praise, of childlike, faith-filled praise, we're destroying the enemy that would rise against God and us. Verse three, and this is the verse you'll notice that inspires the opening lines of how great thou art. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him? There's our smallness. Verse five, for you have made him, man, a little lower than the angels. The Hebrew word angels here is Elohim, which you may recognize. It can be translated as God. It can be translated as lowercase g, gods. It can be translated as angels. You could kind of do a catch-all phrase and say something like the celestial powers. So man is so small, and yet he's made us just a step below the celestial powers in the universe. You've crowned him with glory and honor. And you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. In other words, God creates, and then he has us delegated to have dominion over his creation. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. Think about all of the amazing creatures that go through the ocean depths. We have dominion, we've been crowned with dominion even over that and that amazing creation. And then verse nine, a recapitulation of that opening line, opening lines, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. We have three points today. The first is embrace wonder. The second, embrace responsibility. 
And the third is embrace the creator who became one of us. Embrace the creator who was made a little lower than the angels and who even now has ultimate honor, glory, and dominion. So point one, embrace wonder. This psalm, if we'll let it read us, awakens us to wonder. The wonder of God, the wonder of his creation, the wonder of our place within the creation. Many of the Psalms, and of course much of the Bible, do the exact same thing. Wonder is something that we can choose at any moment, and it's greatly helpful to it. And in just a moment, we'll talk about the benefits of wonder. But first, I want to talk about where we find wonder. Where do we find it in our lives? It's something that can help us. It's something that the Bible points us to, but where do we find it? And the answer is, it's very simple. Everywhere. We find it everywhere. We have to, to use a phrase from Jesus, have eyes to see and ears to hear. And if we do, wonder is everywhere. One of my favorite writers, G.K. Chesterton, British writer, lived 100 so years ago. And he put it this way, there are no uninteresting things. There are no uninteresting things, only uninterested people. I love that quote. In fact, I adapt that quote when I teach communication at Missouri State. I say, there are no uninterested people, there are no uninteresting people only uninterested people. It's an important conversational point. As you're trying to get to know somebody, have a conversation with someone, you have to remember, this person's interesting. You may not realize it, but everyone is interesting. But, uh, but uh, Chesterton's quote is much broader than that. He says, there's nothing that's uninteresting. We're just uninterested people. You know, if we look at the people around us, we'll see that they're endlessly fascinating when we'll engage with them, listen to them. The physical world, mind-blowing in its grandeur, its intricacy, its beauty. We can find unceasing wonders in the world of art. That is, you know, we are created as creations to create. We're created to create, and as we see the amazing works of art and the amazing just labors in all of its, their various forms of the people around us, that can awaken wonder in us as well. When I think about the world of art, I think of, of course, music, how amazingly uplifting can music be? We had a great worship service today. Thanks to everybody on the team. And thanks also for letting me be a diva and request how great thou art and including that. Appreciate you. So, but the music, it can uplift us. It can transport us. There's a wonder in it. A wonder that we don't really understand. Scientists study music and they study our neurology. They don't quite understand why this music is so powerful and so moving to us. There's other forms of art as well. There's architecture, right? The buildings that we inhabit. Look at this beautiful building that we're in. This is incredible. I remember when I was a kid, Logan was talking about when he was nine sitting in church. I remember being nine and sitting in church, sang some of those 90s worship songs, I'm sure. And I was sitting there and I would, I would look up and I would see the ceiling in here, which is so incredible. And I would think, how did they build that so it doesn't fall on us? <laughs> I should have been listening. I would have saved myself a lot of trouble if I'd listened a little bit more closely. But I would look up and I think, this is, this is just incredible. Painting, cinema, literature, all these things. There's no field of study that's uninteresting. We're just uninterested people. And the key here is this. We have to realize that wonder is not merely a pleasant sensation. As I said a moment ago, wonder is important. Wonder is fundamental to living the, guy, the life that God wants us to live. Absolutely fundamental. Here's how. First of all, when we embrace wonder, we become more humble. When we embrace wonder, we see we're not the center of the universe. It's easy to think that we are, right? Easy. We see I'm not the center of the universe. I'm a part of something much bigger than myself. And there's this nice little dose of humility. I think we could all use a nice dose of humility every once in a while. Certainly I can. 
And wonder is a dose of humility without humiliating us. That's the key. There's a couple of ways to get humility. One is humiliation. If I got a little carried away today, let's say, let's just take a hypothetical situation here. What if I misstepped here, and I like tumbled down the stairs in front of everybody, like arms flailing, clattered to the ground, and I was laying there, that would humiliate me. That, that would be humiliating. A few of you are laughing a little too hard at that, by the way. That's, that's, just kidding, you're laughing just the right amount. And so, if that happened, that would be humiliating. There are things that we can do, we can mess up and be humiliated, and that'll make us humble. But there's another way that we can be humble that doesn't humiliate us, it doesn't hurt us, and that's by experiencing wonder. The wonder of God, the wonder of his creation, the wonder of our place within it. Wonder, in fact, we could define as this, humility that feels good. It's an important thing that we have wonder in our lives. Wonder also awakens us to curiosity and creativity. It makes us want to keep learning, keep seeking out new knowledge, expanding our intellectual horizons. Another thing that I tell my students at Missouri State very regularly in all the classes is this, you'll do yourself a huge favor. We got students here, we got a lot of students, okay, down front. You'll do yourself a huge favor if you can learn to like learning. If you can learn to like expanding yourself and learning more, not only will you have a better life, you'll have a happier, a more enjoyable life, and you'll be more easily used by God in your life if you can learn to like learning. Wonder is a fuel for us to help us like learning. It also inspires, as I said, creativity. So we engage with the world around us to see its incredible things. We ourselves are inspired to create in our own ways, whatever that may look like for us in our lives. And this wonder, again, at our creator and at his creation is a choice that we make. When we choose wonder, and again, we can do so at any time, we can do it right now. We experience delight, humility, curiosity, creativity. And then most importantly, we're pointed to God. Whether we realize it or not, when we embrace wonder, we are being pointed to God, the ground of all of our existence, the ground of all of the wonders that we see around us. And that's an important thing. It can enliven our reverence to God. It can increase our gratitude for his boundless grace. It can excite an eagerness to know him more, to commune with him more, because he is, in the end, the inexhaustible fount of wonder. And he has given us a place of honor and dignity within the universe such that we ourselves can accomplish wonders. And that brings us to the second point today, embrace responsibility. The psalm points out that we were created a little lower than the heavenly beings. We were given dominion. We have rationality and ability to work with our hands, ability to work with our bodies, make something of our lives, and make something of our communities, and make something of our world. And because we've been gifted to that, with that, we have a responsibility to do those things, and not simply to do them, but to do them with excellence. That's the responsibility that we bear. I'm gonna use an example here. Last year about this time, I used a similar example. I, I talked about our talents and how we use our talents in the world, how that's an important thing to do. And I use the example of superheroes who are given superpowers that they can then use to you know, save the world, and it's inspiring to us. Well, today as I talk about the general gift of honor, glory, and dominion that's been given to humans, I wanna talk about one superhero in particular. Sorry, nerd, this is you know, it's what I think about, so here we are. We're gonna talk about one superhero, there's some excited to, to hear about this. We're gonna talk about Peter Parker for just a second, okay? We got some, thanks for the woo. I, I feel the same way about Peter Parker. Peter Parker is, for those who don't know, Spider-Man. I call him Spidey, okay. But he's Spider-Man. Spider-Man burst onto the scene mid-60s. He was a unique 
comic book character, and he grasped the attention of young people in a unique way because Peter Parker was a teenager, he was a young person, and he had lots of personal problems. And so young people who read, read comics that time, now people of all ages read them, but young people at that time, they would read this comic, and it was, Peter Parker wasn't Superman, Batman, he, wasn't, he was a young guy, and he had trouble with relationships, he had trouble with girls, okay? He had trouble keeping a job. He had trouble providing for his widowed aunt who took care of him. He had trouble with his schoolwork, even though he was very smart. He was trying to juggle all this stuff, and so kids loved it. They loved to read about a superhero who was like them, who had all these struggles. And then, of course, he became a superhero, and he starts doing his superheroics around, and his life doesn't get better as a result, right? It gets worse. It exacerbates his problems. He's having more girl problems. He's having more trouble at school. He's having more trouble at work. He's having more trouble taking care of his aunt. So why does he keep doing it? Why does he keep doing it? The reason comes from the first issue in which Spider-Man appeared. His uncle, before he died, told Peter, with great power comes great responsibility. And so Peter understood that I've got this ability in my life, I've got this power in my life, so I've got a responsibility to use it. And that adage carried him, and he was able to engage with excellent work, web-slinging through the streets, because he'd been given this great power, he had a responsibility to use it. This psalm reminds us, again, that we've been given great power in the world. We've been given dominion in the world, in the created order, and we have a responsibility to exercise that dominion with excellence. God has put all of us in places in our lives to exercise dominion in our own small ways. We're not all like kings and princes and things like that with dominion, but we all are uniquely powerful, actually, in our lives. If you think you're not very powerful in your life, Allow me to just submit for your consideration, at the very least, that you are more powerful than you realize as you interact with the people around you, as you do your work. All of us have a unique power in the world to influence. We're part of communities. We're a part of church. We're a part of schools. We're a part of workplaces. You have a unique power within all of those areas, and God is calling us in all of those areas to live a life of excellence. With great power comes great responsibility. Allow me to turn your attention to a very convicting verse on this theme. It's Colossians 3, 23 through 24. This may be familiar to you because Pastor Jared used this passage last week in his excellent exposition of the 100th Psalm. And so I had already outlined this sermon and I saw that I had, had used that same verse that he was using. And then I thought about it and I thought, you know, I need to say this again, if only for me. I need to hear this verse a couple of times, if only for me. So we're going to return to this verse. It bolstered very well what he was talking about and this thing that we're talking about of responsibility. It's a verse that gets me, or two verses that really get me and that bother me in the right way. So let's read them. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. And whatever you do, just a general Christian command here, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Let me tell you why this one gets me. In my life, I've got things I like to do and things I don't like to do. We can all share that in common. The things that I like to do, I'm pretty willing to throw myself in hard, live with excellence, get after it. The things I don't like to do, I'm just trying to get through it. I'm just trying to get by. I'm just slogging along. I will admit I'm blessed to have a job that I love. I love the job very much. I love teaching students, and I love student interaction in all of its various forms. But there's other aspects of the job I don't love so much. The office work, things like this, okay? I don't love that stuff, and I find myself, when I read this verse, getting convicted because I see I don't, 
I don't do everything with excellence in my life. I don't pursue excellence in all of my pursuits. I just don't do it. But the Bible says to me, to all of us, and whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men. Because whatever we do, we're supposed to be viewing as doing it for God. Here's the key point. It says in this verse, we have to be doing the things in our lives as if we're doing them for God because we are. That's the point. Whatever we're doing in life, it's a part of our service to God. It doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter whether you love it or hate it. We're supposed to do it with excellence. We're supposed to do it as if we're doing it for God because that's exactly what we are doing. And you know, whenever we recognize that the various pursuits in our life are in, a, in their own way service to God, when that happens, then we can commit ourselves to working with excellence and with the right attitude. I have to remind myself, okay, if I'm just messing around doing like data entry or something like that at, at my work, I'm always, you know, I think, oh, I just gotta get through this so I can do something I like. So that's not right. I've gotta think, okay, I'm doing this for God. And once I think of that, then I can commit myself once again to excellence and to a better attitude. And we do this once again because of the honor and the dignity and the dominion that we've been given. That great power comes with great responsibility. Now you may think, as I talk about living this life of excellence, you may think, wow, that's tough. Living a life of, I mean, that, that, that's, that's a burden almost. Well, here's the point. God doesn't just say, here's the burden, does he? What does Jesus say? He says, come to me, my burden is light. He's not saying there's no burden. He's saying, if you come to me, I help you carry it. I help you carry the burden. I'm there for you. And so as we want to live these lives, it's imperative that we have a relationship with God, that we have spiritual practices in our lives that enable us then to be living that life directed towards God of excellence, glorifying him in everything that we do. And that brings us to our third and final point. Embrace the creator who became one of us. The Psalms are poetic songs, as I said before. And like much poetry and like many songs, they have layers of meaning. There's multiple levels of meaning in the Psalms. This Psalm has at least two layers of meaning. The first one is the one that we've been talking about today. The basic layer of meaning about the looking up at this incredible creator, how excellent is his name throughout the earth. It's glorious, he creates us, we're so small, and yet he gives us a place of dignity and honor. He cares for us. There's that basic level meaning and its implications which we've been discussing so far. There's another layer of meaning that comes to us from the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, chapter two, if you'd like to turn there. The author of Hebrews is someone that we don't know much about. We know that this person wrote Hebrews and we know that this person was brilliant. Those are the, those are the two things we know. Had a remarkable command of the doctrines of Christianity and the Old Testament. And what the book of Hebrews does is it serves as a bridge of sorts between the Old Testament, its historical narratives, its rituals, its rites, its symbols, its prophetic visions, and it creates a bridge between all of that to the person of Jesus. And it connects Jesus and says, Jesus is the ultimate, excellent name in all the earth. And so here, the author of Hebrews takes the eighth psalm and builds that bridge to Jesus. So we're going to look at chapter 2 of Hebrews, verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. 6 through 9, okay. The author of Hebrews says this, but one testified in a certain place saying. And then he starts a quote of the eighth psalm. What is man that you are mindful of him? 
or the son of man that you take care of him. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. All things in subjection under his feet, end quote. Now we go back to the author of Hebrews writing to us. And the author says this, For in that he put, he, God, put all in subjection under him, humanity, he left nothing that is not put under him. In other words, if you say all is in subjection, that means everything. Now here's where it gets interesting. But we do not yet see all things put under him. We do not yet see all things put under humanity. In other words, in general, of course, we have dominion over the earth. We can all agree humanity has dominion over the earth. But we don't have complete, utter, absolute dominion over the earth. Okay, interesting tension here. You can tell that the author of Hebrews is trained in classical rhetoric because the author creates this kind of sense of tension and says, well, wait, we don't see all things put under subjection. And then he resolves that tension with verse 9. He says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. The implication here, of course, and what's made abundantly clear throughout the book of Hebrews, is that while we don't have absolute dominion, there is a human who does have absolute dominion. The psalm says generally humanity has dominion, but ultimate dominion is given to one person, the human who was also God, and that's Jesus. And what this means, what this story of incarnation means, is that the God who fashioned the universe and all these wonders is not only mindful of us, he became one of us. He's not only mindful of us, he, as the version from the Old Testament said just a moment ago, literally visited us. Someone hundreds of years before Jesus came said, what is man that you visit him? And then God quite literally visited us, came to earth, was one of us, made himself lower than the celestial powers, lived in the midst of people in all of their imperfections, teaching love of God, teaching love of neighbor. And as the author of Hebrew points out, he tasted death for everyone. That means he tasted death for you. If you're a Christian today or not a Christian today, Christ tasted death for you. He died so that we could live. He experienced destruction so that we could experience wholeness and joy. He died to save us from our destructive behaviors. Thankfully, he didn't stay dead. He miraculously rose from the grave three days later, and he's been given ultimate glory and honor and dominion. And he's even now building his kingdom through his spirit in the world, and he's inviting all of us to be a part of it. And we're a part of it through embracing wonder, through living lives of excellence wherever God's placed us, through always embracing him. If today you're hearing this message and you're thinking, I kind of want to be a part of this kingdom building, I want to have this relationship with God, if that's never something you've experienced before, I want to invite you. Christ tasted death for you. God became a man, made himself lower than the angels to taste death, to suffer, to die for you individually. He's mindful not only of us in the aggregate, he's mindful of us as individuals. That means whoever's listening here, here at home, he's mindful of you individually, and he visits you individually through his spirit. He is saying to you, yes. The question is, will you say to him, yes? He says yes to you. If you've never said yes to him before, you can do so right now, you can do so today. And if you'd like to do that, 
Would you pray with me right now? I'll ask everybody to bow their heads, close their eyes, and we'll pray together. And if you've never accepted Christ before, you want to do that today. You want to join Christ and follow him with your life and experience his goodness in your life. Please pray with me.